Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care uh, program uh, workshop. And actually, uh, today's program is a collaborative effort between the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care. And it's part, um, it's actually part one of a three part series on triple negative breast cancer. So it's really, um, I know that's making everyone on the call very pleased because uh, it's just wonderful to be able to offer so many programs on triple negative breast cancer. Um, and today's uh, program, uh, the topic of today's program that's featuring is really an update really on triple negative breast cancer um, for all of you, just that's our part one. And, uh, and today's program is a collaborative with the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and a number of other both cancer organizations and breast cancer organizations as well. And um, with all of your interest in the program today, we have over 479 participants on the call today. You've come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Austria, Canada, Denmark, India, Mauritius, and United Kingdom, so really from a bit all over the world. And today's program is made possible by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, the Celgene Corporation, and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support of the program. And I particularly want to thank the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation because they've been helping us to do these programs for many years now. And I'll say more about that um, as we move along on the call. Now, our first speaker on the call today is Dr. Generosa Grana. Dr. Grana is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, Division Head, Hematology and Medical Oncology, the Cooper Health System. She's also Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. And I'm going to say that Dr. Uh, Dr. Grana is going to present really an entire overview of uh, triple negative breast cancer and really cover um, both the current standard of care and emerging treatment approaches. And she's really going to present really the entire medical picture on triple negative breast cancer um, for us. And so I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grana. Thank you very much, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so in the next 20 to 25 minutes, I am going to cover uh, triple negative breast cancer, the epidemiology, what do we know about this disease? the difference between triple negative basal, the genetics, talk about early stage metastatic, and then talk about some of the new strategies that are being looked at and some of the new drugs and compounds that are being uh, studied in this disease. And then we'll finish by talking about management of side effects um, and some of the issues around selecting your care team. I would begin to say that selecting that care team is very, very important and that uh, triple negative or any other breast cancer really is a disease that needs a team approach. It is no longer a disease that is managed by one individual alone, either a surgeon, a radiation oncologist, or a medical oncologist. But with regards to triple negative breast cancer, it's particularly important to have that team because as we'll come to talk about, it is important to decide whether chemotherapy is given first or later, uh, and that's a critical piece. 
beginning in the 1990s, up until the 1990s, breast cancer was lumped under the terminology of breast cancer. But since then, over the last 30 years, we've really come to understand that there are many subsets of breast cancer. We started out by recognizing the hormone-positive uh, estrogen and progesterone positive elements. We then in the 2000s learned about HER2 new positive disease. And now we know that there are probably more than eight to 10 subtypes of breast cancer. And the usefulness of understanding and subdividing breast cancer is really to determine prognosis of each of these groups and to begin to select appropriate treatment. And furthermore, to make sure that the research that's being done is being done with appropriate agents on the appropriate groups. So what is triple negative breast cancer? It uh, is not a common cancer. It accounts for 15% of all breast cancer. 70% of the cancers that occur in BRCA1 positive women are triple negative. So you sometimes will hear BRCA1-like cancers used in this terminology. And the characteristics of uh, triple negative breast cancer are that it's estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 nu negative. But we've now learned that there's much more than those three uh, tests that one can use to subdivide triple negative breast cancer. There's also a terminology that's used called basal, um, and uh, basal and triple negative are not exactly the same. A large number of triple negatives are basal, meaning they have certain uh, immunostains that predict its behavior, but there's triple negative that's not basal, and there's basal that's estrogen positive. So again, I want to uh, urge you that there are some specific nuances and differentiation that we're beginning to understand. What we do know about triple negative breast cancer is that, in general, it has a more aggressive behavior. It's more common in young women, more common in premenopausal African-American women, and again, as I said earlier, more common in BRCA1-positive women. Its clinical behavior is that it tends to present as more advanced disease at diagnosis, has a higher grade. It typically is grade 3. It often presents as an interval cancer between mammograms. So a woman will tell you that she had a mammogram a year prior that was normal, and now she's got a sizable cancer, and that's a function of triple negative. There is not as good of a relationship between size of the cancer and lymph node status as there is with the ER positives. Here you can have a small cancer that has lymph node involvement. The risk of recurrence tends to be highest in the first one to three years after diagnosis, and then it really declines very dramatically. And within the first five years, the, the outcome is not as good as with uh, ER-positive disease or HER2-new-positive disease. There tends to be more of a risk of spread to more serious places, lung, liver, etc. cetera. Uh, so we do know that it is a more aggressive uh, disease by presentation. What do we understand about the genetic aspects of triple negative breast cancer? As I said, uh, there is a higher rate of being triple negative if you're mutation positive. And for many years, uh, having triple negative disease under the age of 60 was one of the criteria that supported ordering genetic testing. In one particular study, they said that if you just look at young women alone, uh, under 45, up to 10% of them will have a mutation in BRCA1. But if you add triple negative and under 45, you're going to pick up 25% of those women to have mutations. So we now know that uh, genes are very important. 
But BRCA1 is not the only piece of the story. There are other genes that are involved in the development of triple negative disease. And this year at ASCO, uh, which just happened approximately a week ago, uh, Fergus Couch from uh, uh, presented data uh, looking at other genes. So they did now what we call multi-gene panel testing, uh, and it didn't stop at just BRCA1 and BRCA2. And what he showed was indeed that uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 had the highest risk, BRCA1 being absolutely the highest risk of being triple negative, the highest association, but BRCA2 was high, BARD1 uh, was also significantly high, CDH1 and others. So nowadays we understand that, yes, BRCA1 is still the biggest piece of the story, but there are other genes that play a role in the development that so we should be more broad in our study of individuals who have triple negative and not just limit our genetic testing to BRCA1 and BRCA2. Uh, that's important not just for the individual, because for the individual it may open certain drugs, that, uh, and we'll talk about that PARP inhibitors that are focused on individuals with mutations, but it's also important that we test these individuals for the information it will have on the family. So again, multi-gene testing is probably very important in the triple negative population. So then let's talk about management and approach to early stage triple negative disease. Uh, traditionally, surgery has been the mainstay of treatment, mastectomy or breast conservation uh, with the lumpectomy and radiation. But clearly here, we now have to think early and importantly about whether a woman should be treated with preoperative chemotherapy. Now, if a cancer is small, a lumpectomy is perfectly feasible and post-lumpectomy radiation, and a decision is then made to use chemotherapy typically if the cancer is more than five or six millimeters in size. But in that decision-making, you have to take into account the woman's health, other health problems, and the woman's preferences as you're making a decision about the chemotherapy versus not. Why do we want to think about preoperative chemotherapy? We want to think about preoperative chemotherapy in the right patient because it may give us an opportunity to downstage the tumor and to make breast conservation surgery possible in cases where it might not have been possible. A larger cancer, uh, a cancer in a small breast where you might have needed to do a mastectomy may be able to be downstaged enough that a woman could then have a lumpectomy and radiation. Preoperative chemotherapy also allows us to assess a patient's response to chemotherapy and also to make decisions based on how they respond and what you find at the time of surgery as to what other treatments may be necessary. Chemotherapy. Yes, chemotherapy is an important part of triple negative disease. Is there an optimal chemotherapy? I would argue probably not. There are various regimens, various schedules, various durations, but by and large, there's still a lot of variability uh, as to what chemotherapy is selected. The one thing that's important to note is that some of the tools that we use in other types of breast cancer don't play a role here. So, for example, oncotype testing does not help triple negative. Hormonal agents are not added to the management of triple negative disease, tamoxifen, the aromatase inhibitors. Herceptin and its group of agents, which are for HER2 new positive, don't play a role here. So, again, uh, we have different decision-making tools. In terms of the typical chemotherapy regimens that are used in um, early-stage breast cancer, whether 
preoperatively or postoperatively, adriamycin cytoxin followed by taxol, uh, often given in a dose-dense fashion, meaning it's given every two weeks, uh, adriamycin and cytoxin followed by weekly taxol. Uh, there's some data to support the addition of carboplatinum to the taxol, and that can be given weekly or every three weeks. The question of whether you do the taxol first with the carboplatinum or whether you do the AC first is up for debate, and there's no uh, definitive answer that one is better than the other. So, uh, And in some European countries, instead of adriamycin, they favor epirubicin. So clearly these are the options, but there are others that you may pick if a woman is older and has poor cardiac function. You might use an agent, a regimen such as CMF. Uh, in some small cancers, some people might use a regimen called taxotere and cytoxin. So the message here is that there are a variety of agents that can be picked and not one is uh, absolutely uh, preferable. The important thing when one is doing preoperative chemotherapy is to follow the woman closely to make sure she's responding because there is a small group that will not respond to chemotherapy and may actually grow. And those women you need to be ready to take to surgery or to change your treatment. Um, so again, follow, careful follow-up of a woman that you're giving chemotherapy prior to surgery is paramount. Often we do imaging halfway through the regimen, uh, oftentimes an ultrasound. Some people will do more than an ultrasound, but I think physical exam and careful imaging is important to make sure that you are obtaining the results you want, which is improvement. The woman then goes to surgery, either a lumpectomy in nodes or a mastectomy or some women who may choose bilateral mastectomies. And what you find at the time of surgery is critically important. We aim, our goal is to find a pathologic complete response, meaning no disease in the breast and no disease in the lymph nodes. Having, finding a residual non-invasive disease doesn't alter prognosis, but that's our goal. On the other hand, if you don't achieve that and there's still disease in the breast or disease in the lymph nodes, the prognosis is not quite as favorable, and that's when we have to have additional discussions about whether additional chemotherapy is necessary. Approximately two years ago, a study was published that showed that if a woman still has disease in the breast or lymph nodes, more than a centimeter in the breast or lymph nodes that are involved, Adding six to eight cycles of an oral agent called capecitabine or Zolota was actually quite beneficial, and that benefit was in the triple negative population. It did not show benefit in the estrogen receptor positive population. So in today's world, if a woman has residual disease after preoperative chemotherapy, uh, capecitabine is often utilized to improve her outcome. There are also a couple of interesting trials that are being done right now to see if we can even improve on that. There's a trial in which women who have residual disease can complete their capecitabine and then go on to a year of pembrolizumab or Keytruda, as some of you will have heard. Uh, that's an immunotherapy agent, and that trial gives patients a year's worth of that drug to see if it will alter outcome. There's another fascinating trial looking at an androgen receptor antagonist. Uh, about 30 to 40% of triple negative breast cancer will express androgen receptors. And there's some data that these cancers can be treated with antiandrogens. Uh, and salutamide, one of the drugs that are used to treat prostate cancer, can have a lot of activity. 
So this is also now being used and being studied in early stage disease if there's residual. How often do we achieve this fantastic result called pathologic complete response? In about 40 to 50% of women with triple negative breast cancer, you can hope to achieve a pathologic complete response with chemotherapy, whereas if a woman is estrogen positive, the likelihood of achieving such a response is much lower, likely on the order of 12 to 15%. So in some regards, triple negative disease is quite chemosensitive and does respond well to preoperative chemotherapy. And we also know that the outcome uh, is uh, very much affected by that response. So if you achieve a pathologic complete response, the chances of remaining cancer-free for 7, 10 years or more is very high. On the other hand, if there's still disease in the lymph nodes, the outcome is not as great. And if there's still disease in the breast, a little bit better, but still not as great. So we know that the response of the cancer to chemotherapy is important as a prognostic tool. So where are we going from here? A lot of women with early stage uh, triple negative breast cancer are being given um, preoperative chemotherapy. How are we going to improve on that? Again, there are a couple of interesting trials that are going on that hopefully will change how we treat these women in the future. There's a study being done across the world uh, it's NSABP B59, and that trial is a preoperative trial. Everybody gets uh, carboplatinum and taxol first, followed by adriamycin and cytoxin or epirubicin and cytoxin. But the question that's being asked is whether a, set, uh, a tesalusamide, uh, tecentric, the drug that just recently received FDA approval, in triple negative breast cancer, whether adding that drug during the chemotherapy and for a year will improve pathologic complete response and overall survival. So that study is being offered to women uh, who have early stage disease. I told you about the study looking, and again, tecentric or atesolusumab is very similar to Keytruda or pembrolizumab. So clearly the concept of using immune therapy uh, both in preoperative and postoperative settings is important. I told you about the ensalutamide androgen receptor study. That's giving women a year of ensalutamide with the option of extending to two years. And a study in which BRCA1 positive women uh, are, were given a PARP inhibitor uh, for a year has just closed. We don't have any data on that trial. But again, we're anxiously awaiting it because a fair number of these triple negatives will have BRCA1 mutations and may well be helped by adding an oral PARP inhibitor after chemotherapy. So having said that about early stage uh, disease, uh, where are we going in terms of the search for newer drugs and new targets? There's a lot of work looking at the PD-1, PD-L1 compounds. Uh, you've heard about some of these drugs that are being used in melanoma. Some of these agents are being used, are now approved in lung and colorectal, uh, and we're looking at those in breast. PARP inhibitors, which alter DNA repair, uh, started their world in the BRCA1 positive population, but are now being looked at more broadly, uh, and a whole host of other drugs uh, that I'll mention briefly. 
what are we looking at in triple negative breast cancer? The problem with triple negative disease is that we don't have good markers. In estrogen receptor positive disease, we have the estrogen receptor. In HER2 nu, we have a good marker. But in triple negative, that is not quite as clear. Uh, there's some work looking at developing assays that may help us predict who will respond to treatment. So something called the homologous recombination deficiency assays being developed, and that's to help us decide if platinum compounds will be effective. Uh, the study that was presented at ASCO was a negative study, but again, it's just the beginning. People are beginning to look at tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes, uh, and there is data to suggest that if you have an increased number of these lymphocytes, you have improved response to chemotherapy, higher pathologic complete response rates. Again, I think the data is still not perfect, but that is an area of ongoing research. And again, looking at androgen receptor testing uh, to predict who may benefit from androgen receptor blockade. Looking at PI3 kinase, I'll come back to this. 8% uh, of patients have mutations in PI3 kinase. Uh, and a drug called uh, PICRAE was just approved in the population of patients. So we're beginning, uh, there's a lot of work being done looking at markers that can help us tailor the management. Now, briefly, there was a study that was published ahead of ASCO called the Impassion 130 study, which was a study in metastatic breast cancer. And this study looked at giving immunotherapy combined with chemotherapy versus just standard chemotherapy. The chemotherapy they chose in that study was a common one called NAB-paclitaxel or Abraxane, and it was given with a tesaluzumab uh, versus just the NAB-paclitaxel alone. And what the study showed is that if you look at the entire population of patients that were treated, and there were about 800 patients in total, 900, uh, overall there was a slight improvement with the addition of the immune therapy, but not enormously beneficial. However, if you look at patients that have PDL1 expression, they have this marker called pro, uh, program death uh, ligand. If you just isolate those patients and you look at those patients, they had a much higher response rate and a longer time to progression, almost a two and a half month improvement. If you look at overall survival, there clearly was uh, data to support the use of the immune therapy in that population, 25-month uh, overall survival versus 18 in the group that was not. So I think we now have FDA approval for the, the drug, the immunotherapy tecentric, a tesaluzumab, uh, in patients that are pdl one positive, and every metastatic patient should have uh, uh, next-generation sequencing to test and see if they have this marker, because if they have this marker, this would be a very useful approach uh, that is very beneficial. There's also some data on the other immune therapy, uh, pembrolizumab or Keytruda, that you guys have seen advertised on television for lung and other cancers. There are actually prior studies that show that that drug has activity in triple negative disease, particularly though that agent seems to have uh, benefit in patients that have microsatellite instability um, or patients that have high mutational burden. 
and it was actually FDA approved for all solid tumors, not just breast, not just triple negative, but all solid tumors who may have something called MSI high or microsatellite instability high, uh, where in that study they saw a very nice response of about 36%. So I think the world of immunotherapy is starting to open up in uh, triple negative breast cancer. Next, let's talk about PARP inhibitors. What are PARP inhibitors? Uh, Poly-ADP ribose polymerase, a big word, but it's a family of enzymes that are needed for DNA repair, uh, and they repair single-strand DNA breaks. These compounds are very interesting because individuals who have BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations and potentially other gene abnormalities um, actually have abnormal DNA repair. So if they are already born with abnormal DNA repair and then you give them a PARP inhibitor which knocks out this second mechanism for DNA repair, you would expect that it would lead to cell death. And there is actually good data uh, to suggest that indeed it does. So there are a, com a variety of agents in clinical trials. Uh, probably the one that's gotten furthest in this course is Olaparib. Olaparib has FDA approval in breast and ovarian cancer, and there are ongoing adjuvant and neoadjuvant studies being done with that agent, and a neoadjuvant study was presented last year. The adjuvant study has yet to be completed. The first of the metastatic studies in breast cancer was the Olympiad study, and that is where Olaparib, an oral compound, was compared to the physician's preference of chemotherapy. And in that setting, patients either got typical drugs like capecitabine, venorobine, uh, or irebulin, and they compared that to olaparib. And actually what they showed was olaparib uh, almost doubled the uh, progression-free survival. So really a nice uh, improvement in outcome, and the drug uh, has received FDA approval for this. Now the toxicities, there are toxicities. Uh, but it, very manageable with those reductions. There are other trials going on with other PARP inhibitors. Talazoparib is being studied, and there is a study with that agent in the preoperative neoadjuvant setting showing a pathologic complete response of about 53%, although the number of patients on that study were tiny, uh, but it does set the stage for what is to come. So I would say that in terms of treatment of triple negative breast cancer, there is much to be learned, uh, but clearly we're on the way, uh, and uh, lots of drugs are interesting, and a lot of research is going on, so stay tuned because we will learn much more. Now let's finish uh, briefly with talking about some of the other issues that were on my list uh, to cover. The importance of multidisciplinary management in triple negative breast cancer. Again, I think like no other disease, I think this is a form of breast cancer that is crying out for a multidisciplinary approach because the decision about whether to give pre-op chemotherapy or not uh, is important. The decision of uh, timing of radiation, uh, chemotherapy agents, et cetera, really needs a team, and it should not be a management that is made by a surgeon or a medical oncologist alone. So I do believe that choosing the right team that's going to work together to carry out a plan is critical. In that regard, if you're uncertain, second opinions are always useful because it helps you often to clarify your thought process and you lose nothing. Your team should be very receptive to second opinions. Next, managing treatment side effects. 
pain, neuropathy. I think here the key is communication, making sure you communicate to your team what side effects you're having so that they can help you manage them. Neuropathy is a common side effect that is related to both the taxanes as well as the platinum compounds. We now are doing some preventative things, cryotherapy where you put your hands in ice prior during the infusion uh, to avoid neuropathy, supplements to help uh, uh, avoid and treat neuropathy, and some strategies to treat neuropathy once it has occurred. So I think the key is being very proactive to prevent it and when it happens to manage it well. And the same with pain. I think it's really critical that you work with your team to manage uh, side effects and to communicate with them about what your needs are. Finally, um, communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life and goals. The whole, in, in metastatic disease, it's all about quality of life. We want to prolong your life, but we also want to focus on quality of life. So it's really critical that your team knows what your goals are, what benchmarks uh, you have uh, that are important to you so they can work with you to achieve those goals. And finally, um, one other piece of the managing and treating side effects, as these new immune therapy agents are coming to the market, they're going to be quite challenging because they have novel uh, side effects. So you can have inflammation of any of a variety of tissues. You can have inflammation of the colon leading to colitis, leading to diarrhea. You can have pneumonitis, hepatitis, a variety of, uh, of uh, conditions that really are going to challenge the oncologist in terms of managing them, but it's going to be important for you to report so that you don't sit at home having uh, these symptoms and the team doesn't know about them. The management of many of these symptoms are either uh, steroids to treat the symptoms, holding the drug, lowering, uh, adjusting doses of drugs, et cetera. So again, communication is key. And finally, I'll just finish because the topic was raised about follow-up care plan. And that's something that's really been uh, a priority nationally by the uh, College of Surgeons, the Commission on Cancer, suggesting that every patient who finishes their treatment for breast cancer, not and not just triple negative, all breast cancer and other cancers should receive an end-of-treatment care plan that summarizes their pathology, summarizes all of the elements of their uh, treatment, and that plan can be shared with the primary care provider, the, all the members of the breast cancer team, and the patient themselves. So it's a good summary of what happened, what toxicities may uh, come in the future, and what the patient should be aware of and alert to. Uh, and I think that's a very important piece because tying in your primary care team is key as you move on to the survivorship mode. So with that, I'll stop and uh, we'll take questions afterwards. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gra. That was really quite the turn of force. A lot of information, uh, so comprehensive and so well presented. So thank you. And there will be questions. There are questions already online that I can see lining up, so we'll definitely have a lot of questions. And before we take questions, I just want to um, introduce um, Arlene Brothers. Arlene is the Director of Administration, the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, and um, Ms. Um, Brothers will be addressing um, programs of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. It's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Brothers, and I have to say that, of course, the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation has been funding um, our programs for so many years, these workshops, and really lots of them. This is a three-part series. They also have been funding our um, 
triple negative breast cancer foundation um, helpline as well as providing financial assistance and so many other things so i it's just great um I'm just delighted to have Ms. Brothers on the call today and uh, to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Brothers. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and uh, thank you, Dr. Grana, for that incredibly informative presentation. Um, I learned a lot. Um, so we are so grateful for this wonderful partnership that we have with Cancer Care. Uh, this workshop today is one of many programs offered by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. All of our programming is specifically designed to address the needs of the triple negative community, from patients and survivors to caregivers and loved ones. Um, I would like to take just a few moments to highlight some of our most important programs and resources, and I sincerely hope all of you will take advantage of them to help navigate through diagnosis and treatment and into survivorship. Uh, first, I want to mention our newly redesigned website that we're really excited about, tmbcfoundation.org, uh, which is where most people first find out about the foundation. Our website includes information about triple negative breast cancer and dealing with a triple negative diagnosis, uh, TMBC-specific clinical trials matching service, um, which is really helpful if you're just looking to find clinical trials that are specific for triple negative patients, educational brochures and fact sheets that are available as free downloads from our website. Um, information about our phone and email helpline that you'll hear a little bit more about um, that's provided by Cancer Care. And a favorite of our community are online discussion forums. The forums allow you to connect with other patients, survivors, caregivers, and loved ones to ask questions about treatment, how to manage side effects, and really anything else related to a triple negative breast cancer diagnosis. Uh, most importantly, these discussion forums offer consistent online support to our TMBC community. Coming this fall, we will once again partner with Living Beyond Breast Cancer on their annual fall conference in Philadelphia. I hope all of you will consider joining us. I know there's a lot of people on this call. Uh, this year, the dates are September 20th and 21st. It's a really wonderful weekend that provides TMBC-specific sessions as well as opportunities to socialize with our incredible TNBC community. TNBC Foundation sponsors travel grants for those from outside of the Philadelphia area who would like to attend. So please keep an eye out on social media and our website, tnbcfoundation.org, for announcements regarding registration, which will open next month in July. Um, another important program for us is Triple Negative Breast Cancer Day, which will begin on March 3rd, 2020, <laughs> so a little early, but please put it on your calendars. Um, it lasts throughout the month of March. Um, this is a campaign that will raise awareness and funds for triple negative breast cancer. Um, and in fact, 100% of all funds raised will be dedicated to TNBC-specific research projects. Um, that's what we do every year with the funds from this initiative. Many of you on this call have been helping us with this initiative since it started in 2013, planning amazing events and starting social media and email fundraising drives. And we want to thank you for your past participation and enthusiasm, and we hope you will join us again in 2020. It goes without saying that TNBC-specific medical research is extremely important to our foundation. We not only support cutting-edge research at leading medical institutions, but we work hard to inform you about any new developments in this area. 
please follow us on Facebook and Twitter for important updates and announcements regarding groundbreaking research and educational and support opportunities throughout the year. I hope that we can connect with all of you soon on social media, by phone, online, at tnbcfoundation.org, or hopefully in person at the fall conference in Philadelphia. Thank you all for joining today, and um, now I'll return you back to Dr. Meitner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bubbis. That was really wonderful. It's just a great description of what you're doing and um, also just really um, highlighting some upcoming events that people want to put on their calendar. And again, uh, we can't thank you enough for your support of these programs and, and all that you do. Um, and our next speaker is uh, Ms. Lauren Chatelaine. And Ms. Chatelaine is an oncology social worker, and she's our Women's Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And um, Ms. Chatelaine will be addressing the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation Helpline and also a review of the psychosocial services offered by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Helpline. Um, and it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chatelaine. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Good afternoon. I'm very happy to be a part of this program today. Um, as Dr. Mesner mentioned, I am an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, as well as Cancer Care's Women's Cancers Program Coordinator. I work with many women diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer and their families. Um, I would like to share information about how the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation Helpline and Cancer Care can be a part of your support system. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care have partnered together to ensure that those diagnosed with TNBC have access to free psychosocial services and support. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation Helpline, which is generously funded by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, provides callers with access to comprehensive services. These services include one-on-one -on -one counseling offered in person in the New York City area, as well as short-term telephone counseling nationally. Additional services include TNBC-specific support groups, TNBC and clinical trial education and reading materials, as well as limited financial support. By calling the helpline, individuals are connected with an oncology social worker trained in the physical, emotional, and practical challenges when diagnosed with TMBC. Our professional licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis impacts an individual as well as their loved ones and support system. We are aware of the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact that TMBC can have on an individual. Adjusting to and finding new ways of coping with this diagnosis can be an important part of your healing process. Individual counseling can offer a space to express your feelings, emotions, and concerns one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker. A social worker can offer support and guidance as well as help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones, among other challenges specific to your diagnosis. You and your social worker can discuss what led you to the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care and explore the ways in which we can offer support. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you may encounter throughout your diagnosis and treatment. Finding support through other individuals during this challenging time can be very helpful. At this time, Cancer Care offers a TNBC online support group, and there are also active forums on the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation's website, as Ms. Brothers mentioned. 
The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation also offers a clinical trial matching service that can make your search for these trials faster and easier. You can speak to a trained clinical trial navigator by calling 855-731-6036 or by visiting www.emergingmed.com slash network slash TNBCS. If you are interested in learning more about the support services we offer, I encourage you to call the TNBC helpline at 877-880-8622. Our professional oncology social workers can help you understand what this diagnosis may mean for you and for your loved ones. We can also explore ways to connect with others. We are here to offer you support throughout this experience, and we look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be part of this very informative program. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, well, thank you so much, Ms. Shelby. That was really wonderful and wonderful resources for everybody um, to, to access. Um, so thank you so much for um, identifying them and also for um, being available as an oncology social worker on this helpline to really help people with their psychosocial concerns as well. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, Crystal? Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Teresa A. Your line is open. Thank you. I'm a triple negative stage four cancer patient who failed uh, multiple lines of chemotherapy uh, and uh, had surgery with late stage uh, ascites in my abdomen, very advanced cancer at that time. I was uh, able to join a clinical trial that allowed me access to personalized therapy and uh, by targeting a, um, a therapy tailored to my cancer, I was able to achieve a complete uh, pathologic response just eight weeks into therapy. So I have, I think, a very encouraging, uplifting, happy story for our triple negative uh, population. I've remained that way for the past two years. Uh, my question for you is... Um, if a, if a stage four person like me has had a complete response, perfectly normal tumor markers, uh, no evidence of disease in any way, uh, do I in any way resemble that cancer patient who was not stage four and had a total response and did not relapse three years in? Does my risk fall off in any way? Thank you for that excellent question, and, and Teresa, we're really delighted to hear that you're doing so well, actually, and, and participating in clinical trial as well. I'm going to ask Dr. Grana if she could address your question in a general way, and then we, of course, would advise you to go back to your treating healthcare team, yeah. of course, with the specifics. But so I think you highlight the wonderful research that's being done, uh, next-generation sequencing, the concept of looking at alterations in a cancer and designing a treatment plan based on the alterations that you find is exactly where the field is moving. Um, and you were fortunate that there were alterations because, unfortunately, many patients have 
no alterations found or alterations to which we don't have active drugs. But you are fortunate, and we want to encourage participation in trials and making sure that sequencing is done. Is your outcome the same? I wish we knew. Uh, we definitely, in every practice, have patients that either with uh, personalized approaches like yours or with standard chemotherapy and surgery go into remission and are cancer-free and are followed. And I have patients that have been cancer-free for five years or more after chemotherapy and surgery. Do we know what their long-term outcome is? No, we think they may well be cured, but we don't have that data. The number of patients that are fortunate enough to be in that situation are not as uh, high as we would like. We have the same problem right now with her to new positive disease. People that go into remission with her to new based therapy, how long do you continue their therapy? Uh, how, when do you consider them cured or do you consider continue their her to new therapy indefinitely, and we tend to continue indefinitely because we just don't know, so it's early. Excellent. Well, thank you, and, and Teresa, thank you for being on the cutting edge of your care. That's really uh, very helpful to hear, and, and thank you for sharing your story, and, and Dr. Uh, Grana, thank you for addressing this and, and, and helping people understand, um, uh, understand this better. And um, so we have... And we have another question in um, the telephone. Is that correct, Crystal? And yes, ma'am. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Yes, thank you so much, Carolyn. As usual, excellent, excellent seminar. Thank you, Dr. Gredna. I have uh, two questions. I'm a 13-year HER2 breast cancer survivor, no evidence of disease. I had one year of Herceptin. I just heard you say that how long they continue with the Herceptin. Um, I was told no more because it's 13 years now and I'm don't need it anymore. So I'm wondering about other women who, how long is the cutoff, like you were saying? And so I, go ahead. I'm sorry. Secondly, also, I want to know about supplements. I take B6, B12, and I also take alpha lipoic acid for peripheral neuropathy, the taxol uh, caused it 13 years ago, and I'm continuing on it. Is there any other supplements or any other therapies to help neuropathy instead of this, of course, Durantin, you know, Cymbalta and Lyrica? Thank you so much. Thank you. So your first question is for the woman who has early stage uh, her to new positive breast cancer, the, not the topic of today's lecture, but in that situation, we actually have very good data that one year of her to new based therapy, Herceptin, or in today's world, maybe Herceptin and Progetta, one year is sufficient and you don't gain anything by doing two years. What I was alluding, though, to is the woman who has metastatic disease. And in the woman who has metastatic disease, you actually don't begin with a plan of one year. You begin with a plan of ongoing. Um, and we don't have a definitive answer as to how long to treat those women if they're fortunate enough to go into complete remission. So the distinction of one year versus ongoing is whether you were early stage and treated with that one-year goal or whether you were advanced metastatic and treated with the, the other. Um, so for you, nothing now, you're, you're good. Uh, in terms of supplements, I tend to recommend the same supplements that you're using, uh, alpha-lipoic acid, uh, B6, uh, some of the B vitamins are useful. Um, but other than 
agents such as Cymbalta and Lyrica, there really is nothing particularly once the neuropathy is established. A lot of the movement now is to prevent the neuropathy from happening by, again, using cryotherapy during the taxol infusions. Uh, some people use cold caps for their hair while well, you use a similar concept of socks and gloves for the hands. But I am not aware of other strategies once the neuropathy has been established and you're far out. There are physicians out there. We have an integrative medicine physician who does a lot of work with patients around symptom management. So uh, I would suggest that that's something you should consider. But I, you're doing the things that I typically recommend. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks, uh, thanks for that question. Um, and now we have questions from the online participants. So um, we have quite a few there. So I'm going to move over to them. Um, and um, so um, the question here is, um, so this is uh, uh, to Dr. Grana. If breast cancer recurs, does it come back the same type as the first time? So it's important to biopsy whenever humanly possible a recurrence because in up to 20% of cases, the cancer that recurs is different from the original cancer. And the differences can be really treatment changing, can alter the course of the treatments you would pick. So you can have cancers that were once ER positive and you select a clone that's now ER negative. You may have a cancer that was HER2 new positive and is now HER2 new negative, and it clearly changes the drugs that you are going to use. So whenever possible, rebiopsying to assess. And also, whenever possible, doing this next-generation sequencing, or some people use the company called Foundation or Keras. They're the two that are... Uh, in the market, although there are others, and I have no relationship with either one. But you use technology to uh, look at the gene expression profile of a cancer to begin to get ideas about targeting your therapy. So the first question that we heard was about someone who, through precision medicine, was able to participate in a trial that uh, selected a drug that was particular to her cancer. Uh, we now have drugs like atesolizumabe that is ideal for cancers that are PDL1 positive. So your pathologist needs to do the testing to determine and to help your oncologist to select the most appropriate drugs. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, another question um, for Dr. Grana. Any information on proton therapy in left-sided tissue, in left-sided disease with mass and auxiliary node involvement? Uh, so it's really the, an interesting topic. Um, as you know, there's been a lot of public attention paid to proton therapy, and the areas where we have some clear-cut data on protons is in children, uh, particularly in children with brain tumors. Uh, but in other cancers, there is no clear-cut data that I'm aware of. Now, I'm not a radiation oncologist, but there's no clear-cut data uh, that protons are superior to well-designed uh, treatment plans that include standard radiation. When you're treating the left side of the heart, there is actually a lot that goes into the planning. You do a fair amount of uh, contouring to shield the heart, uh, breath hold to avoid lung toxicity. So there's a whole language in radiation oncology that is meant to protect uh, uh, normal tissue, but I am not aware of any strong data supporting protons in that setting. Excellent. And another question for you, Dr. Crown, from one of our online participants. 
So I also want to know what chemotherapy, and this would be a general question um, because we don't know all the specifics here. I want to know what chemotherapy medicine would best for a TNBC patient, so it's just a general patient, um, nabotaxel or erubilin? So that's a question about which drug, and I know that that would be a difficult I, I think so you questions. really, it's not a question that I can answer well. Um, I think because the question is, are we talking about early stage disease or advanced? And in early stage disease, we don't use either one. We tend to use adriamycin, cytoxin, epirubicin, carboplatinum, uh, taxol, taxotere. So if we're then talking about uh, metastatic disease, Almost any drug uh, has activity, and the choice, what the choice that's best for the woman often depends on what she's had before. So if you had Taxol prior uh, and you finished it in the last year or two, Nabpaclitaxel is basically albumin-bound Taxol, so I wouldn't necessarily choose that. Uh, so you decide on what drug you're going to use next based on what the woman has had before, what side effects she still has. If you have neuropathy that's significant, you're going to be, uh, again, shying away from nabpaclitaxel. The only other uh, important thing to think about is also whether you're trying to get approval for one of the immune therapy compounds. Today, a tesalucumab is approved with nabpaclitaxel. So that may be what forces someone's hand in terms of the agent they can pick. But I think you need much more data to make the right answer here. And, and I think the key about triple negative is that it's sensitive to many different drugs. So that's actually a positive thing. Is that correct, that it is sensitive to so many drugs? Is that correct? Yes. I think it's, uh, it's not by nature uh, necessarily resistant from the get-go. Excellent. And we have a telephone question now. Thank you. Our next question comes from Bethany Kay. Your line is open. Hi. I had a question. I'm. Um, they're treating me as triple negative, um, but I'm actually, I did have a weekly estrogen positive, around 40%, they said. And I guess I'm wondering where that comes into play when you have a weekly positive hormone. Um, the reality is that 40% is not so weakly positive. It's not a 90%, not, uh, so it's not one of the strongest, but it's still very much uh, positive. And so you're someone where I would absolutely use hormonal therapy uh, and where I would optimize your hormonal therapy. Where we sometimes get into debate is when you get an ER that's 5%. Because typically, uh, for example, there's an ongoing national study that for triple negative metastatics, and they require the ER to be negative less than 1%. So I tried to put a patient on that was 3%, and she couldn't. It was 3%. So th when you're in that 1% to 5% range, there can be a lot of debate as to whether you're going to give that woman any hormone at all. And the reality is that she's probably not going to derive a lot of benefit from hormone but at a 40%, I think you're going to derive benefit from hormone, and I would actually be very uh, sure that the hormone therapy is optimized. Excellent. Thank you. That's a great question, and thank Great answer. Okay, and our last question, uh, uh, Crystal. Thank you. Our last question comes from Lynn F. Your line is open. Open. Thank you very much. This has been a tremendous program. Thank you, thank you. I've been reading articles that are suggesting that as we have longer-term survivors, which is tremendous, 
we really need to be mindful of the possibility of brain mets and perhaps leptomeningeal carcinoma. Could you please comment on that? And should a brain MRI be a part of the follow-up? I think you bring up a very good question. So uh, brain metastases are an issue uh, more in the HER2 new positive population, but also in the triple negative population. Uh, we, when you have early stage disease and you're in a follow-up mode, uh, the key is you are looking for symptoms. You're looking, doing a neurologic assessment. You're asking the woman about neurologic symptoms, headaches, etc. But they typically present with symptoms. So no one is doing serial MRI of the brain in either the HER2 new positive or the HER2 or the triple negative. Um, and but but we are aware of that risk. So as you have hints, you start looking. Our treatments are also getting better in terms of, uh, well, our treatment for brain metastases are getting better. Our treatment for carcinomatous meningitis is not so, so much better. Um, brain metastases are when you have an isolated lesion in the brain, one or many, but they're nodules in the brain. And the things that have improved is some of our drugs have better penetration into the brain um, and we now have things like gamma knife and cyber knife that can be used to target radiation to them. So we have patients that are long-term survivors that are being managed well for their brain. The problem with carcinomatous meningitis is that it doesn't uh, do so well. Prognosis is not very good, and our treatment approaches are not uh, so good. But uh, everybody is uh, looking at this, and it, for example, in the HER2 new positive disease, there's an interest in ticarb and neratinib as they may have a little bit better penetration into the brain. Uh, so stay tuned because I think we are eventually going to get there. But right now, we are not routinely doing serial scans of the brain. I want to thank you all, all our speakers. I, I particularly want to thank Dr. Brana. You've really, um, you've really been, usually we have a, a lot of oncologists. We only have Dr. Grana today, and she has been outstanding. So I just want to thank you. You can't hear us applauding Dr. Grana, but we are. So thank you very much for doing this. Um, and I want to thank all of you on the call, both those on the telephone and online and those who have been listening, um, the people who asked questions and those who have been listening. Um, and I, um, I know there are many more questions in queue that we probably could stay on the phone a bit longer, actually. I think we probably have at least an hour or two more questions. So I want to address the uh, issue of the questions that are remaining at this point. For those of you who still have questions, I very much want to encourage you to go back to treating healthcare team. Even those who asked questions today, take it back to your healthcare team because they know you the best, of course. They know everything about you. Um, so that's a wonderful resource for you. Um, we also have partnered with the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, and we have our um, the helpline here. So please take advantage of that. And again, when you get the evaluation, you'll be getting all the numbers of any numbers that were mentioned during the program today, any resources, and you'll be getting additional resources as well. And there are many breast cancer organizations as well. Um, but we do suggest that you call the helpline first because they're really terrific. We also have a matching uh, clinical trial services, all kinds of services that you can access from the, the helpline as well. Um, and um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone. We know that you at times feel alone, but you're now part of the cancer care neighborhood. You're part of this community here, and we're here to help you. And the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation neighborhood as well, we're linked together as a partnership. And I do want to remind you that we do have a part 
two of this program, which is an issue I know that's on many of your minds, and it's actually triple negative breast cancer and the therapy current, which is true for every type of cancer. And we're going to focus this one on just triple negative breast cancer and therapy currents. And um, we also have a part three. Um, so the, the part two is on June 24th, and the part three is on June 27th on coming with the stresses of caregiving when your loved one has triple negative breast cancer. So something for everyone on the call. And I would definitely encourage you, if you haven't already, to go ahead and sign up for those. And, um, and finally, we do have a program on cancer survivorship, which I think applies to many of you on the call today. And that program's on June 18th, same, uh, same, uh, uh, actually from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern time. You'll be getting a, a, all of our upcoming programs. We have quite a few programs in June that might be of interest to you, so I'll leave it to you to pick and choose the programs that you'd like to um, participate in. Um, however, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And uh, I want to wish you all um, a good day and uh, look forward to being on some of the other programs and, and take good care. I hope this has been helpful to you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.